my very first sermon ever, I preached in the community of Dandora. Dandora is a large, sprawling area of abject poverty in the city of Nairobi. And I went there with a team from our church, and I was asked to speak, I was asked to take the sermon. And I remember being, it was through translation, and I remember I would, at the very beginning, say a sentence or two, and my host, the pastor of that church, translated me in a sentence or two. And as I was moving along in the sermon, my sentence or two became a paragraph or two. And I began to realize he wasn't thinking much of my sermon. And he was expanding it and growing it. And I would say something, and I can only imagine it was an amazing sermon that he was preaching that sounded nothing like the one that I was preaching. And it was my first experience of the humility of preaching. It was an excellent reminder for a seminary student that we step up in everything we do before God, before God's people. And we say our words, we sing our songs, we pray our prayers in the hope and the desperation that God will take our sentences and turn them into paragraphs in the hearts and minds and lives of the people who are listening. Because the truth of the matter is that day in Dandora, I wasn't very good. And even at my best, many, many years later, I'm still not very good. But what struck me about that day was the entirety of worship, the reverence of the moment, the grace, the welcome, the praise that was lifted up before God. There were no lyrics projected on a screen, just the sound of many voices singing of their desperation and longing for Jesus. These were untrained musicians. It was certainly an unremarkable preacher that day. But in spite of all that, together we were able to capture and captivate the hearts and minds of the people. Despite the lack of resources, we were experiencing community. We were experiencing trust. We were experiencing the presence of Jesus Christ. It was my first experience after growing up in church of worship. There's something about our global south brothers and sisters who have something to teach us about worship. So when I say to you, worship, what comes to mind? What are the things that enter into your thoughts about what it means to worship? Some of you, of course, will immediately jump to singing. Rosa and Dave led us so well this morning. 
Some will think it's the preaching. Some will think it's in the prayer and the acts of service. Some will think it's the whole package put together. We'll all have different ways of how we connect to God and how Sunday morning is a source of deep meaning for you. And we will disagree. And if you've been around church for a while, you will remember the worship wars of the 90s. I remember as a member of a youth group, and this, you've heard me tell this before if you've hung around here for a while, my dark decade where I left church and wanted nothing more to do with it. And part of the reason for that stems back to the worship wars. I remember the youth group coming together and the youth pastor sat us down, parents on one side, youth on the other, talking about the merits of Christian rock. Now at the time there was this, this kind of heavy metal Christian rock was sweeping through youth groups and the parents were appalled. They were absolutely incensed. And the youth, of course, were trying to defend this music. And there was this, I'm sorry to say, ridiculous amount of time spent on trying to convince us youth that this wasn't godly music. They were so successful, they chased half of us out of the church. I think we can see it summed up in this newspaper article from an American pastor objecting to the new trends in church music. He writes, there are several reasons for opposing it. One, it's too new. Two, it's often worldly, even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style. And because there are so many songs, you can't learn them all. It puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. This new music creates disturbances making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generation got along without it. It's a money-making scene and some of these new music upstarts are lewd and loose. Does that sound familiar? Have you ever had those conversations? I've had some of those conversations with you. This article was written in 1723, attacking Isaac Watts, who wrote, among others, joy to the world that we sing holding on to the old tradition of hymns because they are the godly lyrics that we must hold on to because this new fangled chorus music is not of Jesus. 1723. We have come a long ways and learned a little, maybe not much. I don't want to talk about the worship wars this morning. 
I think we're in desperate need of recapturing what the men, women, and children of this tiny church in a Nairobi slum discovered that shared worship within the community with a sense of belonging is what we are seeking. Because this is the worship that will usher us in to a transformative experience with our brothers and sisters, the people of God together with God at the center of what we do. I love how theologian John Whitvliet describes it. The celebration and celebrative response of what God has done, is doing, and promises to do. I stand at the back of the church most Sundays because I want to watch you worshiping. I pray over you. I pray for you. This morning I heard your voices rise up. You were rivaling Rosa. And it was beautiful. The things God has done, is doing, and promises to do. Paul, in his letter to Romans, I think points us toward what that means for us when we consider worship. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of understanding, of sorry, undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. So I am reading in the New Living Translation if you have the ability to change it. So we worship what? We worship the God who gives us peace. See, Paul is telling us that our status has changed. We've received an undeserved righteousness, a friendship with God. I don't know about you, but I don't know if that sense of peace between myself, broken, sinful, utterly depraved, and the Creator God who is perfect, I sometimes, maybe most often, really forget how audacious that is. I mean, I wouldn't think of walking into the throne room of an earthly king, and here I am invited as a child, a friend, into the throne room of the king of kings. And it's undeserved. We stand in this grace, accepted and loved. And it's, it's a continuous relationship, and it's secure. We can trust this relationship. There is really nothing we can do to earn it, because it's God's love. Paul writes in chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, I don't know what nothing means to you, but to me it means nothing. That there's literally nothing I can possibly do to make God stop loving me. 
And I know my life. I know the somethings that could easily be not a nothing. And yet God is saying, I love you. And so we praise and we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of his glory. We rejoice that this hope is certain. We rejoice in the joy of it all. We rejoice in confidence. We rejoice in the rest of an expectation planted on a firm foundation. On his good promise. And we rejoice in all seasons. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Pouring his love into us day after day after day. Because when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though Someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed us his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. And so we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice that God is with us even in the most difficult circumstances and seasons. And we aren't just talking about the regular trials of life, our aches and pains, fears and frustrations, our discouragements and disappointments. Although, yes, he is with us in those places. But Paul's pressing us even further. He says we are able to rejoice. We are able to worship in the face of a hostile world that actually seeks to oppress us. Jesus warned his disciples in this world, we will have trouble. And Paul is saying, in that trouble, we can rejoice. I think that's why in this Dandora slum was some of the most beautiful praise. Absolute adoration and adulation of Jesus Christ. And Paul says we can rejoice because that suffering produces endurance. And the endurance produces character. The character produces hope. And that hope leads us to a deep assurance of this love from God that is perpetually and continually poured into us through the Spirit. God's love brings joy, peace, freedom, and confidence. And even in a deep sense, a self-respect. You see, if we actually take the time to take stock of our lives, really thinking through the way I might be disappointing God could very easily become quite a discouraging and depressing place. 
But the Spirit pours out God's love, calls us to rejoice, calls us to worship, calls us to say thank you, and restores us back to being able to look at ourselves the way God asks us to look at ourselves, as an image bearer of his greatness and one of his children. God's Spirit pours his love into our broken hearts, allowing us to be keenly aware of his presence. And he shows us this love in Christ's death on the cross. And for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice at the wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. So we rejoice that we shall be saved through Jesus. That this isn't it. There's a forward promise that we look forward to. God has done this remarkable thing through Jesus Christ. He is doing a remarkable thing through his spirit. He will do a remarkable thing by rescuing us all and holding us to himself for an eternity. There's much, much more still to come. The best part of our lives lie in front of us. We live in a condition that is somewhat half-saved, and so we look forward to the completion of God's promise. And that's what happens when we come and we rejoice and we praise and we worship. So we rejoice in his mercies, we rejoice in his love for us, we rejoice in the joy, and we rejoice in God himself. And I love this. The word that Paul uses for rejoice is kahamai. And it really means a boastful pride. If I were to speak about myself in this way, you would call me a blowhard. But to brag and boast about the goodness and greatness of God That is what we're called to do when we worship and we praise. So we worship what? We worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that is the story that we are called to live. But if you're like me, you contend with a shadow side. We have temptations We have temptations to worship that that is other than God. And I think that's the root of the worship wars. As we fight with one another over what is right, that is rooted more in personal taste than it is for love of brother and sister. We would call this idolatry. You see, I think we look for hope in the wilderness all too often. I know I do. So worship isn't this, just the thing we do consciously in our songs and prayers and spiritual disciplines. It's not the thing that only happens when we draw together on a Sunday morning. It's the way we live our lives that reveal our worship. Our loves, our work, our relationships, our children. These can all be sources of worship 
that misalign us from actually focusing and giving our praise to Father, Son, and Spirit. An obsession with success. The search for validation that we all crave. Seeking affirmation from achievement, from status, from money, from relationships. When we place our sense of purpose and completion in things or people other than Jesus, we risk paying the high price of idolatry. And so this just isn't about getting our Sunday morning worship right. It's about getting our lives down the path that God has called us to so that everything we do becomes worship. So we ask, what am I worshiping? And that's the invitation here for us to regularly consider and reconsider and reconsider what we're doing, why we're doing it, and where we're placing our worship. I know that I need to do that. Because I think there's a, there's a condition, a human condition, that we lose our way so easily. I love the, the image of Jesus when he's in the upper room with his disciples and he comes with water and they don't want him to wash their feet. And he says, if you don't let me wash you, you have no part of me. And they say, well then not just my feet, all of me. And Jesus says, no, you're clean. But as we walk life, our feet get dirty. And so I think there's an invitation here for us to wash one another's feet to invite ourselves into what is it that we need to do in order to be faithful in our worship. Because our worship isn't just the thing we do on Sunday morning. I think there's two Hebrew words that are helpful as we consider what this means. It's shakah and abodah. Shakah means literally to bow down, to prostrate oneself. And abodah means to work. And both are translated in several places through Scripture with the English word worship. I think this means that our reverence and adoration for God involves our whole body and our whole life. It's more than singing a few songs on Sunday. It's a call to offer our bodies up as living sacrifices with God at the center. It's a holistic, boastful praise in word and deed. It's whole body participation. Our whole body and the whole body as we do this together in community. It's the kind of worship that will shape our mission because make no mistake, a missional church is always a worshiping church. In my travels, I've never once seen a faithful, missional church not be a worshiping church. Also in my travels, I've never seen a church struggling with worship that has been faithfully missional. So getting this one right matters for our call. We're called to worship with our time, our energy, our resources, our hearts, minds, bodies, and our words. 
True worship participates in God's redemptive work. It brings healing. It touches hearts. It is transformative and it is faithful. This is what I experienced in that wonderful morning in Dandora. I've experienced that here. But I think we're in a season where we're being called to reflect on our worship. Because shared worship within the community with a sense of belonging will usher us into an experience that will transform us into being faithful people of God. Together. And like Dandora, it can cross cultures. It can cross languages. It can cross personal preferences. Where instead of us fighting as to whether it should be a chorus or a hymn, we say to one another, it's a smorgasbord, let's have both. As we praise God together and place Him at the center of all that we do. This is my desire for us every Sunday, here and now. And my invitation is for all of you to join me and desire that too. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness and your grace. For the many ways that we have tainted worship. For the many ways that we have placed much in our lives above you. Lord, I ask for, for your forgiveness in the ways that I have placed all of the worldly aspects of worship ahead of you. Lord, we invite you into the center of this church. We invite you into the center of our lives. We ask you to show us what it means to participate in worship with our whole body. Lord, we thank you for your grace and the way your spirit keeps calling us and inviting us and wooing us into a deeper relationship with you. And so Lord, as we once again raise our voices to you, I pray, Lord, that you would hear our words and that this, Lord, would be a joyful noise of reverence and boasting in your name. And Lord, it is in your name that we pray. Amen.